0: Last week was kind of a primer. This week we're kind of starting uh, into the thick of the story of, of how God worked through Joseph. And uh, last week we didn't really talk much about how we came up with the name Framed for this series. This name of the sermon series is Framed. And uh, this, is, this, is, this is why we've named it that way. In this story of Joseph... We're going to get the opportunity to see themes of God's sovereign will playing out alongside of uh, the free volition of man in a, in a unique and very beneficial way. So there's no one Sunday that we're going to ask the fullness of that question. I don't even, I don't even know if we can answer the fullness of that question. But it is a regular theme through this story. And so... Uh, over the, over the summer, as we spend time in the life of, jo- life of Joseph, you're going to have the opportunity to see different ways that God's will comes in and constrains uh, the circumstances, while at the same time people play their lives out in the ways that they're accustomed to. Um, I'm inclined to think that we ought not to make it more complicated than it is. It feels like we make decisions in life. So I think we're making decisions in life. Just feels that way, and if we're not supposed to be the wiser about it, then we're not supposed to be the wiser about it. But somehow, in all of the decisions we make in life, the Lord and His story and His will and His way are going to be made known for the glory of His name, and that's what this story is about. So, with that said, uh, we'll be in Genesis uh, 37, and this morning, uh, just a tiny snippet of this big idea is the idea of generational, how things pass down generationally. I want to say generational sin, but I don't want to seclude so many other things that are passed down that are beneficial. All of us know that there's ways that we've learned to be that have come from a parent or an aunt or uncle or a grandparent or a friend that they have. In some ways, we own them, but we also inherited them. They were given to us. If someone may say to you, "Why? You know, how is it that you came to model that? So well, And if you were honest, some of you would have to look back and say, well, it was modeled for me or I saw it. So generational sin is not the only thing that's transmitted down the way. But uh, it is what we're going to be talking about this morning. And it is something that I think is peculiarly bothersome to us. As to how the sins of our forefathers can haunt us when left unchecked. And we're going to see that this morning as it's played out. In the story of Joseph. So with that said, I'm going to read uh, the first four verses of the 37th chapter. This is what it says. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Those four verses are packed. Uh, Let's start at square one. The first verse is kind of an in-between verse. It's, It's holding hands with the last story, and it's kind of pulling together this story. And it says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed. It's important to note because Jacob was a wanderer. Remember, he ran away from home, was gone a long time. The last time we really encountered him, he was... Uh, we met Esau, and then we saw when he, last week with dining the Shechemites how he moved again. The Bible is clear to, to show you that Jacob did finally settle down in the land of promise. He's there. He's back where he started. He has, and He has received the blessing of God. It's not Esau who's living in Canaan. Esau went somewhere else. It's Jacob who is living in Canaan. That's worth seeing. And then we kind of enter into the story in full-fledged in verse 2, and it says, this is the account of Jacob. Now, we all call it the account of Joseph. This is the story of Joseph. But the Bible says it's the account of Jacob. And it does this. It did this in the last time we preached in Genesis. When we read the story of Jacob, the story of Jacob began, this is the account of Isaac. Now, we can wonder, uh, you know, maybe there's not a good reason for this. That would be a first in the Bible. I happen to feel maybe that at some level there's a certain amount of deferential uh, kind of honor given in the sense that Jacob is alive throughout the story of Joseph. It'd be, be, it would may be maybe improper to assign a story to a son while the father is still alive. That might be a thought. Isaac is alive throughout the story of Jacob. Maybe that's part of it, but I I also believe strongly that this is connected to the idea that the story that we're about to read, that all of the events that are about to be set in motion were were created and formed and fashioned at some level during the life of Jacob, that Jacob is largely responsible for the story we're about to hear. Joseph may be the primary actor. But Jacob seems to have set the stage and built the props and, in some ways, written the script. Which connects this idea to what we're about to read is a very generational story. And as soon as it says this is the account of Jacob, the next word is Joseph. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending his flocks, it says. And then we can begin to learn about Joseph. What's the first thing we hear about Joseph? He's tending his flocks, and it says he bought a, brought a bad report about his brothers. What do we do with that? The Bible gives that to us. What, what, are we, what conclusion do we make? I'm inclined to think he's kind of a bratty tattletale. I mean, if I said brainy smurf, would you know what I meant? He's a little Brainy Smurf here. He, he rats on his brothers to his dad. And it's not like he's the oldest of 12. He's not. So his older brothers may be 10, 15 years older than him. So here's this punk teenager ratting out the brothers who are doing the real work. Maybe that's too much. I, I I think that's about right. I think it's about right. So we see this. We see that there is already a some bad blood or bad relationship between Joseph and all the other brothers. You see how the Bible's clear to set that it's Joseph and the brothers. So we already see that we see that there's cause for the older siblings to think of him as a punk. Because right? they're not perfect. So even if he is totally righteous in the way he dimes them out, to them he's still a punk. That's the first thing we see, that there's cause. Then the, then the next verse gives us a second clue to the story. It says, Israel loved Joseph more than all the other sons. All of his other sons. Israel loved him. And it gives this very curious phrase. It says, because he had been born to him in his old age. Now that's... That's a hard one. Uh, I, I, I kind of... So I'm, there's a, an, a hmm in front of all of what I'm about to say. Maybe, maybe Jacob treats Joseph like a grandpa treats a grandson. You know, may, maybe by the time Joseph showed up, Jacob was old. And the other people raised him. And he was just kind of the grandson. He was a son. Remember, he's a son. But you know, I know how grandpas can be. You know how grandpas can be. Maybe maybe Reuben is a son. Reuben, the goat. Why is the goat out of the pit? Oh, Joseph, come have a Snickers. I, I, you know how it is? Simeon, Levi, the dishes. Oh, Joseph. Here's another present. You know, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, none of those guys ever got a piece of gum in the checkout line. <laughs> all that junk is for grandkids or Joseph. Maybe that's it, okay? It's a, there's a hmm in front of it, all right? But I, I have to wonder because I know, I know, we know, this is certainly not rocket science, people who have been maybe not the best dads but pretty good granddads. It's kind of a second chance. Or we know, I went to a highfalutin private school, so there were some kids there who were take three on the family. Father has first marriage, few kids, that doesn't work out, puts that behind him. Second marriage, few kids, third marriage, and that becomes his son. You have seen that experience before where, there's previous children from previous combinations of relational marriage, and they just they don't get the affection that the last kid gets. You know, I, I don't know. I don't, I'm, I'm not preaching any of this. I'm just saying the Bible means something by it. And in our experience, we see these things. Either way, this is what we know. It's for no good reason. The favoritism's not coming by for a good reason. Jacob does not love Joseph more because Joseph is a hardworking guy who all his other lazy brothers slough around and watch cable all day while he's out tending the sheep. That's not the reason. All we do know is it's not a very good reason. It's not warranted. And then we see a third, this is is the the trifecta of disaster. The third thing we see is, is that Jacob goes so far as to make A richly ornamented robe for his son. Now, it gets bizarre to me to think of Jacob sitting behind a sewing machine making a robe. I like to prefer to think of had made. I don't know exactly, but do you realize how conspicuous the favoritism is now? I mean, there's just massive irony in the fact that, first of all, Joseph, there's cause for the other brothers not to like Joseph because he's a brainy smurf. Secondly, you have this idea that the reason for favoritism of Joseph is unfounded reason. And the third thing you have, this compounding thing, is that Jacob's favoritism over Joseph is so uncomfortably conspicuous. It's so visible. It's this electric jacket. Every time Joseph walks in the room, you just want to throw up. Because the favoritism of the father is the only thing that's preaching. I mean, that, it's tragic. Imagine every time you'd see your little brother, all you could see, like a neon light, was, for no good reason, my dad loves him. And because of that, it says, because of that, the brothers hated him all the more. I mean, those are the, that's, this is arithmetic. Add those three things up. Joseph is an ignog, Jacob loves him for no good reason. And he electrifies this favoritism with this coat. Equals fraternal hatred. Now, I'm not even going to sit here and preach to you about the devastating impact of partiality within a family. If you can't, if it doesn't come out of the text, then you have a hard heart. This is one of those teachings that's so obvious. We're just going to move on because it's just so obvious. So we're going to move on. Let's read 5 through 11. To make matters worse... Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Ah. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. It's the third time the word hate showed up. Then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So if it's not already bad enough, he has these dreams, and they hate him all the more, and we don't really have to spend too much time looking at the dreams. The Bible doesn't even explain the dreams. They are so clear and so obvious. They they do not require a skilled interpreter. And and Joseph Tells them, he shares them with his brothers and with his father. And this is, this is complicated for me at this point. On what, what do we do with this? Because on one hand, I feel like had I been there, I would have said to Joseph, keep your big mouth shut about the dreams. Like, Dude, just keep it to yourself. And then when they come and bow down to you one day, say, you know, I had a dream once. <laughs> but do you have to come telling everybody your dreams? I mean... I I, I want to say, shut up. But then I have this other feeling. And it's this feeling like the dreams were not just dreams. God brought this dream. Like if God gives you a dream like that, he has some authority in it. This isn't just a dream. This is... This is a revelation of God. This is a window into the future that God has given Joseph, not just once, but twice. There's almost a sense of he wants in the family to emphatically know it. Do you notice by the first time he tells the dream, they're like, you, what? You actually think you're going to reign over us? And they hate him all the more. The second time he tells the dream, it says they're jealous. Ha, that's a believer's response. That's like... Even God loves this kid for no good reason. In fact, the father, Jacob, says he kept the matter in mind. You know why? Because Jacob has been involved with this kind of thing before. Jacob's seen this before. The very fact that Jacob was supposed to get the blessing over Esau is the product of a prophetic vision that came to his mother before she went into labor. The home home reason that Rebekah... It helped connive a way for Jacob to get the blessing was because she knew that Jacob had the right to the blessing because the revelation that God had brought. And Jacob remembers that. Jacob also remembers the time he was fleeing from Esau on the way to Laban, and he had this dream at night where the skies parted, and there was a stairway into heaven, and the Lord spoke to Jacob, you are a son of promise. That's not a dream to be ignored. We, obviously, it wasn't a private dream because we read it. He told somebody. And then there's the whole event where Jacob at some point meets this man, this God-man, and wrestles with him through the night and gets the name Israel out of it. So Jacob knows that God works this way. We're given these two dreams, and they're compounding and affirming, and the reaction is... A believing reaction by the family. Let's see what happens. Let's keep reading. I'm going to read 12 to 24. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flock near Shechem, right? Because the brothers have to do all the work. His brothers had gone to graze their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But when, he saw them, when they saw him in a distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. How did they recognize him in a distance? Yeah. Right? That's another reason, right? Not to wear one of those things. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say say that ferocious animals devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, He tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him in this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So Joseph came to his brothers. They stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. And they took him and threw him into a cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. First of all, uh, so just a few quick details. The trip to Shechem is about fifty miles, the trip to Dotham is about fifteen more. So this seventeen-year-old boy is set on a sixty-five mile trip, which should make us all feel pretty lame. That, that, that's how it used to be. I mean that's uphill both ways. Right? He's always on this sixty-five-mile trip. He gets out there, they throw him in a cistern. A cistern is a hole in the ground that's typically been hewn out of the rock. It's imagine like contour of like an old Coke bottle. It has a small hole top and then expands in the bottom. So if you're in it, you're not getting out of it. Okay? And this one happened to have been dried out. So it's a dried out cistern. So it's an inescapable pit, right? That's the kind of thought. And then we need to deal with Reuben for a second because Reuben sounds like a great guy here. Uh, He sounds like the star brother. But I want us to think this plan through. I just... We'll come back to Reuben in about eight weeks. Let's think this plan through. They're gonna devour they're gonna they're gonna Joseph. Reuben says, let's not like shed blood, let's just throw them in the throw them in the hole. And let them die of natural what? Natural reasons, I guess. But let's not shed blood about it. In his mind, his plan is when they're not looking, to spring Joseph and bring him back to his dad. Now, what just play that out in your mind for me. How does that end up? Imagine the dinner around the table the next time you're home. You know, I mean, So Reuben, we might say, is saving his brother, but there's massive betrayal here that I have there's nine or 10 other brothers that are going to be in serious trouble. This isn't Reuben fighting for the life of Joseph, like in an open, overt, courageous sort of way. This is kind of a subterfuge way of getting Joseph back and getting the credit for it. Some scholars think it's because he's the oldest, and so he knows that if it goes south, it's going to be on him. Uh, and that's probably true, but there's, there's another verse. I, I didn't get a chance to read it last week. It's one tiny little verse in the 35th chapter. It's just one verse, chapter 35, verse 22. And it's, it's kind of a catch-all chapter. They're kind of explaining what happened, how Rachel died, how Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother, was born. Uh, where Jacob moved on from there and and so on. And somewhere in it, on the 22nd verse, it says, while Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Ha! I, I believe that there is a hope of kind of restoring the oldest brother restoring his status in this plot to rescue Joseph. That, it is a mystery, but it's hard for me to kind of make a, make a hero out of Reuben, though I will say it's not the heart of the story, so we're going to keep going. That's what I'm going to say. So if we look, by the way, we, we, we read all the way down, they decide instead of just cutting his throat, they're going to throw him in a cistern and... Except for maybe Reuben, everybody else's mind is, they're just going to throw him in and leave him for dead. And and then uh, dinner comes. I'm going to read 25 uh, all the way to the end, and we'll talk. It says this. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and, and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. And they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants, Ishmael, by the way, Ishmaelite and Midianite are uh, crossover phrases here. So it's not two different groups of people. When the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All the sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said. And mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Now, the narrator does an interesting thing in the text. The narrator um, mutes Joseph so as to make him feel like the victim. As you're reading... The silence of Joseph kind of gives him a victim status. But we know in our mind, at least we should have a reason to suspect that this this whole event was not a silent exchange. I mean, think of it. Just let this whole thing go down in your mind. You and your ten brothers or nine brothers are out in the field. You conspire to kill him. Joseph comes whistling up with his fancy coat. You grab him. You rip the coat off them, and everybody, you throw them in a hole, and nothing is said. I can't even begin to make that work. Of course, things are said. You can imagine the things that are said. They can't be written, the things that were said. And Joseph, too. I mean, imagine Joseph pleading, sitting in the cistern. Guys, I'm hungry. I mean, all night. He's sitting there around the fire. They're crackling and cooking goat and having fun. They're sharing a meal when just yonder their brother is in a hole. That is sick. I mean, the, the text paints a picture that's just uncomfortable. Even Judah's remark, you know, let's not leave him here for dead. After all, he is our brother. I mean, it's, nonetheless, they take him out and they sell him into slavery and he goes down. But there's, there's, just imagine, I mean, in your mind, you you owe it, I think, to the word to try to fill in the scenery of what's happening here. of, Of the way that these brothers have treated him and the kind of words exchanged. I mean, those of you who know the whole story, who know that Joseph, at the end of the story, forgives his brothers. Just think of what he's forgiving. It's profound. By the way, in the Hebrew law, if you sold a Hebrew into slavery, it was capital punishment because it's as good as murder. As far as God's concerned, these sons have murdered their brother. This is the fourth generation. How did we get here? It's kind of the question I want to end with today. How did we get here? We started with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and this. How did we dead end God's chosen people here? I think this, uh, this story, uh, one of the ways it serves us in Scripture is that you might think of it as the mouth of a river. This, uh, you'll count. this is the mouth of a river that is fed by the waters of generational sin that has not been checked. That there's been, through the generations, has been tributaries of family sin that has not been dealt with. Not been dealt with. And right now we're looking at it just all dumping out. This is where, when the family doesn't deal with sin in its life, generation after generation after generation, this is where it ends up taking us. We have generations. It's not simply Jacob who loves Joseph. We have generation after generation of favoritism in this family. Don't we? It's not simply Jacob who loved Joseph. It's Isaac who loved Esau and Rebekah who loved Jacob. And by the way, it's Abraham who loved... Isaac, even though Ishmael was there, and the confusion about that. It's generations. And not once have we seen any evidence in Scripture that the spirit of the people have been checked by God. That sin has been allowed to propagate and run deeper and deeper and deeper until now we're at the mouth of the river. Generations of deception has gone unchecked completely unchecked. It's not simply, I mean, look, right now we're looking at the sons deceiving their father Jacob. By the way, by slaughtering a goat. How ironic that Jacob deceived his father Isaac by slaughtering a goat. Jacob has lived a life of deception. Rebekah practiced deception. So it goes all the way up to there. Rebecca practiced deception with Jacob. Jacob practiced deception with Laban. Laban practiced deception with Jacob. Rebekah, or... Rachel practiced deception on the way home against her own father, Laban. It goes on and on and on, occasion after occasion after occasion of deception. Only now is it just dumping out into the ocean. This is the mouth of the river. It's finally just spewing out this generations of unchecked sin, generation of knowing God's plan, generations of God's people knowing God's plan and yet refusing to find peace in it but trying to alter it. Abraham, unsatisfied with God's plan, turns to Hagar. Doesn't he? Isaac, unsatisfied with God's plan to make Jacob the blessed child, turns to Esau. The brothers and the father Jacob, unsatisfied with God's plan to glorify Joseph over them, decide, in fact, to get around it by killing him. It's, this is the mouth of a river of unchecked generational sin. This story, this, it's hardly even the story of Jacob. This is the concluding story of the patriarchs. This is a story that involves four generations of painful, unchecked sin. I'm not talking about sins that you fight with the Lord, or you, you seek mercy and forgiveness. I'm saying sins that we can find zero evidence of them actually embracing. The mercy of God for forgiveness. Not once does Abraham go before the Lord and say, I'm sorry for Hagar. And all of this comes to a head in this story resulting in the attempted murder of a brother who has been selected by God. They are trying to murder God's chosen son. God is sovereign, and so there's at some place in our minds, we're forced to say that it has to be, it always has to be God's way, right? God, God's will will be done. So I will say it has to be God's way, but I will also say this it didn't have to be this way. In our lives, it's going to be God's way, but it doesn't have to be this way, it doesn't have to be the way the story told. I can imagine. I can imagine. I've seen seven brides for seven brothers. I can imagine a bunch of brothers who love each other and sit around a big table and kind of joke with each other and their kid brother Joseph grows up and he's you know everybody loves on him and gives him noogies and and everybody's great and that all these brothers are from the same mom because Jacob their father was a good and godly man and was not a deceiver and therefore was not deceived because he wasn't reaping the generational sin that was already in his life and so it's this one father and this one mother with their twelve sons and their one daughter and they have a huge meal and in the meal their little kid brother says you won't believe it I had this dream, and them all listening and wrestling with it. And I can't imagine, I can imagine a family that could that take that dream in and go, well, dad, didn't God choose you over your oldest brother? And the dad going, he did. Why? I have no idea. God chooses who God chooses. I love you all the same. But let's see what happens. I can imagine that. That's what I'm saying. It has to be God's way, but it didn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be 12 sons by four different women through a life of deception. In fact, you go all the way back, it doesn't, even have to, it doesn't even have to be the fact that Jacob had to cheat out Esau. What if that was, what if from the very beginning, those two brothers were raised to understand what God had intended? Esau, God made you to be this wild hunter who runs around the land because he's not gonna ask you to carry the torch of his promise Jacob has got to do that. I love you both. What if, what if Uncle Esau was this great uncle who visited all the time? Brought in, you know, a big lion. I sh- Look what I shot, kids. You know, everybody's favorite uncle brings in a lion. Well, why couldn't it have been that way? We know We know from our own lives it's going to be God's way, but it didn't have to be the way it's lived out in your life. It didn't have to be that way. What if, what, what if there was no Ishmael? What if Abraham had waited patiently all the time so that when Isaac finally came out, he was his child of promise? He wasn't a favorite child of two sons. He was the only child of promise of one son. It, it, I think it could have been that way had it not we, God writes, and we write within the margins. Do you know how many sons Ishmael had? 12. That it could have been that way. I believe the story of Joseph is a story of God breaking a chain of sin, a generational chain of sin that has not been checked. I believe God is removing in the story you're going to watch. God removing one of these sons out and working on him and in him through difficult and hard ways so that at the end of the day, he can turn around and say to his brothers, I forgive you. What you intended for harm, God intended for good, and I have no judgmentalism in my heart. This is one of the big stories of the Bible. There's only a few really big stories in the Bible. The story of the patriarchs is one of them. This is the, the conclusion and the climax of the patriarchal story. Uh, The story of the Exodus is another one. The story of King David and the the Davidic line of kings is another story. The exile. On those stories, we as the church should expect to find Jesus all over the story. Should we not? We have every right. If he is the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but has now been made disclosed to the saints, we should expect expect to find him in the big stories. And so I believe that we should be able to look at a story like the story of Joseph and expect to find the footprints and hints and fingerprints of Christ all over it. And this is what you see when you see the story of Joseph. You see, you see God selecting. Now, kind of airbrush it, step back, and, and just look at it from a distance. You see, late in time, a man coming who, through promise, is going to redeem all of the men in his family. That's what you see. You see someone who came and because of his promise was rejected and put to death. And you see someone who, despite all of that effort, will in this story be restored and through his restoration and glorification and exaltation raise up all of his family to be with him. This is what God is going to try to do. There is an idea that mankind is layer after layer of generational sin. Since Adam, you and I have been accumulating an increasing debt of generational sin that in many cases has been left unchecked. Every time God does not check the sin, it ends in disaster. The story of Noah is this very account. The story of Noah is God stepping back and saying, you want to see what generations of sin will do? It will end with the destruction of the earth. That's what it is. Jesus is our brother who has come to break generations of generational sin. And he will be exalted. And we will be forgiven. And we will be brought to where he is. Amen. You guys want to come on up and let's pray. Lord. Father, I just want to reach out now in prayer, and I want to lift up those in this church who are the victims of generational sin. Lord, especially, Father, my heart just grieves for those who may not have been the favorite son or daughter. Lord, I pray over those people who don't even know how to understand what a good father looks like, what the love of a good father is like, because they have never seen it, Lord. Father I pray that your holy spirit would just interrupt that chain that it would come in and it would check that sin that you would show yourself lord and father I pray that as as a people as families and as individuals lord we would not tire from trying to identify the things in our life that whether they were inherited or whether they hurt us or whether we father I just pray you would intervene Give us a forgiving spirit so that we can not only forgive those who have sinned against us, Lord, but turn and be made new. Father, I pray that we would respond to you in the way that you lead us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.